You're listening to part one of an interview with Dr. Josh Swamidas. Well, welcome to the Parable Man podcast. I am Jeremy Pierce, uh, the Parable Man, and uh, I have a guest today. Uh, this is Josh Swamidas. Am I pronouncing that correct? I'm not sure I've ever heard it pronounced yes. out loud. <laughs> um, who is a associate professor of uh, pathology, immunology, and biomedical engineering, I think, at... Uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and who has recently published a book called, my camera might not pick up on this because of my background, but The Genealogical Adam and Eve from University Press. Uh, he yeah, here it is. It with him too. <laughs> and because he doesn't have a weird background, it shows better, <laughs> which I have uh, spent a good bit of time looking around in, but haven't quite read carefully the whole way through. The basic idea behind that book uh, uh, is, uh, I, I think, not to really argue for a very clear position, but to argue for the compatibility of several views that have typically been thought not to fit together at all, even remotely, to, to be completely contradictory. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I think maybe a good way to summarize it would be that Adam and Eve are the uh, ancestors of every human being alive before, uh, since about, certainly by the time of AD 1, I think is what you say in the book, and also that they were created 6,000 years ago, directly by God, by a miraculous uh, intervention, and that what, what we learned through science about evolution is true, which most people have taken to be completely contradictory notions. Do I need to throw any other theses in there? I think that's the main one. Well, that, that's the key part about Adam and Eve, right? And uh, I'm Josh Swalidas. Thanks for having me here. Um, but you know, there's a larger story here, too. Uh, I think we find out that these questions about origins connect with deep questions about our worth and dignity in this world, especially as a person you know who uh, who's not white. It, I found out, to my surprise, that this isn't just a question that white Christians ask. Um, this ties into a long conversation over the last, you know, 500 years, really, and maybe even longer, trying to figure out how to understand the unity and diversity of humans across the earth and make sense of the discovery of the new world, the, the harsh realities of colonialism, and really figure out, you know, you know are humans from multiple races or one? And one of the really surprising things that we find out in this, and this is where, uh, this is one of the more interesting, I would say, uh, subplots of the book, is that history and really finding out that the, the core confessions, the demands of orthodoxy and Christianity were that we all descend from Adam and Eve. And that was something in which we found out that we we're all connected to the story of scripture and we we're all one race and one blood. And that uh, was thought to have been disproven by science, but we find out that science now teaches exactly the same thing, that we're one race, one blood, blood. If Adam and Eve existed, science doesn't tell us if they did, but if they existed, you know, we would all descend from them. That's what we find out scientifically. 
And so after about 150 years of conflict in this particular space, we find out that maybe, uh, maybe there is a resolution because they're actually teaching the same thing. So one of the things that I, uh, when I first got your book, one of the things that I went right to was your discussion of the, uh, the development of the concept of race with, um, I'm not going to get these scientific terms right all the time here. So I, I have a confession to make. I have not taken any biology since ninth grade. Oh, and I'll tell you too, there was also, so, unfortunately, a very large error in my terminology there. I ended up issuing an erratum on that. So that might have been part of what was confusing you. I misused the term uh, monophyletic. Okay. So, um, you know, one thing that I did with this book, I mean, it spans a lot of fields, but right when it came out, I, um, I established an error correction policy. I made it public on my blog and I started issuing errata. And one of the, and really the, the first and probably the largest errata I made is that I misused the term monophyletic. Now, I thought you were saying that uh, it really originally meant one thing, but it has sort of come to mean something else. Is that part of what you said correct? Well, the part that I said correct is, my, I mean, polyphyletic. That I was being using correctly. So, but let's okay. just back up because people who yeah, don't we got to explain these terms. About. So the issue is this: um, the big question that's really facing, uh, you know, theologians and scientists and politicians and. And, and people for a very long time is when you look at the human race, are there multiple types of human or is there one? That's right. the big question. Um, and of course, we see diversity amongst the human species, too. So that's what makes it complicated. We're not all widgets that are all you know the same shape and size. Uh, when we see a lot of diversity. So do we think about this as one race or one group or not? And for a long time, uh, really, for hundreds of years, people have wondered and maybe even been convinced. I would say not even people. I'd say most people thought it was self-evident, obvious from just looking at the world, that there were multiple different biological types of human. And that was both in the religious community and that was both in the, and the scientific community. Um, a large part of it does have to do with the discovery of the new world and the rise of colonialism in different ways. So, uh, you know, the church fathers, if you go back, you know, 2000 years ago, they knew that the earth was round, or at least they're open to it. But if you ask them if there were people on the other side of the earth, they, they would have thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that was that was essentially yeah. uniform. They said there's no way there's people on the other side. And the reason right. why they said that is because they wouldn't descend from Adam and Eve. Oh, really? It wasn't because they'd fall off. No, it was not that. If you read, <laughs> so Augustine, City of God, that's one of his, uh, you know, foundational works. I know it's it's really trying to work out uh, what government should work like in Christendom, and what that meant is they just thought the entire world was Christian at this point. The entire world was Christian. I mean, they're working from this very limited scope, and they thought that no, that the entire world is reached. There was well, he, he he knew that that wasn't true though. I mean, they. Well, We'll read it closely. Islam hadn't I mean, come on the scene yet, but... Look, I'm not a scholar on this, but I, you know who I can point you to on this, who did some really excellent work. You know, was Europe entirely his paper on this is Ken, is Ken Keithley. Ken Keithley uh, wrote his paper to um, ETS uh, on my book was precisely on this issue. So Would he have um, thought I'm, India was Christianized at that point? They knew about India. Well, I think they thought that India had actually uh, been exposed to the gospel. Okay, well, if that's all you're, yeah, if that's all, the, it's just that every, every, the whole world had been exposed to the gospel. I think, I think that would, yeah, Augustine would probably have accepted that. And so, you know, I would be surprised for him to say the whole world is Christianized, though, in the way that the Roman Empire was. 
Oh, I didn't say that. Yeah, okay. All right. That's what I thought you were saying. Um, they, they thought that the entire world had been exposed to the gospel and, right. uh, and that essentially that the arc of history was very strongly towards everything looking a lot the way it was, like it was in the Roman Empire. I mean, yeah, mm. he might have known about, well, he did know about India in the corner of his eye, but also remember people tend to be a little bit fixated on their own context when they talk about the cosmos. Right. <laughs> And he and he was, I mean, Roman, the Roman Empire in his time was not anything like it was in the time of, say, Thomas Aquinas, uh, with the with the, the Holy Roman Empire in Europe and the church tied up with exactly the, the political thing, rulers. He he lived thing, though, at a time when he rubbed shoulders with pagans all the time of look, all different the sorts. Thing, because he talks and he had about, been one. <laughs> but here's the key thing, which he talks about in the city of God. The reason he uses it, is that if there were people on the other side of the earth, he can't imagine how they could have descended from from Adam and Eve. So they, so that yeah. just doesn't make any sense with scripture. Yeah. So it's clear that he's not saying it's a, a starting presupposition that there's no people on the side, other side of the earth. He's saying that because he can't imagine. And if you actually look at how the ancients understood the globe, you'd understand why. Because one of the big challenges they have to explain is why is it, in their context, there was no knowledge of people on the other side of the earth. And so while they could see evidence of the curvature of the earth, they had to give an explanation for why is it they didn't know about people on the other side of the earth. And, um, and you know, with the ideas of symmetry and all of that, I think there was a very strong internal bias of saying there were people there, but why don't we know about them? And so the general belief was that there was like a ring of fire across the entire globe that prevented people from crossing it. Huh. And so uh, that was kind of the Greek view, if I understand it correctly. Now, you know, so from that point of view, that's kind of how he saw the world. I mean, he didn't say that explicitly, but that's the context in which he's speaking. Yeah. He says, yeah, I can't imagine how anyone could go to the other side of the earth. And so that, that explains why we haven't right. heard from everyone over there. But that also, I don't think that there's going to be people over there because they wouldn't descend from Adam and Eve. That's what he yeah. says. You know, and, you know, he's appealing indirectly to, to, to the Jesus who's saying, you know, in his ascension to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. <laughs> Um, he's mm. appealing to, uh, you know, the he's appealing to Paul in this indirectly when it says from one God made all the nations. Yeah. And so it really implicates him and really not. I mean, I'm talking about Augustine, but you, know, you can see this through a lot of church fathers that they really thought that descent from Adam and Eve was a fairly uh, core concept. Now, fairly uh, fast core. forward to uh, the, the scientific conversation on this, uh, you know. You have naturalists going out and studying nature and finding out all these really crazy types of animals and plants across the earth. We find out that plants and animals are not the same in different parts of the earth, right? Right. <laughs> and there's a great deal of diversity. And you find different species that look really similar to one another, but they don't actually breed with one another. I mean, there's just this amazing, immense diversity uh, of, of life. Uh, and, and when people found Australia, it was really stunning. They found things like that looked like wolves but they were actually marsupials they yeah <laughs> they had pouches and they found things that uh, that looked like lions but weren't lions they were marsupials and it was, it was mm -hmm. just like amazing to see that and then what they also saw was uh, different types of humans it seemed that were unlike any sort of human they'd seen before they had totally different languages they dressed in totally different ways they had different levels of um, uh, uh, you know uh, understanding of math, different ways of writing, different levels of, of, of civilization. And uh, if you were to just take a naturalistic view, a naturalist view, I should say, not naturalistic, because a lot of Christians thought this too. It's just a matter of like saying, hey, you know, 
if we look at how there's different species everywhere, you know, of different animals, hey, you know, it looks like there's different species of humans. Yeah. And and, um, and, and this is before species had become a technical term in biology, really. Right. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, you just, Aristotle before, um, had the different cat classifications and there were several above genus and species. And then you had genus and species and, and so on, but it wasn't ever given any biological definition. Yeah. So the way how modern science arises, it's really focused on uh, things like the shape of the earth, its place in the heavens. It's really astronomy and things like that. Um, and the, there, the things having to do with, with biology in medicine actually come fairly late. It's really in, you know, the 17 and 1800s that, and, you know, really the mm -hmm. 1800s that that really starts to be, those areas start to become scientific. Um, there's a lot of reasons why for it. And part of it is just because biology and medicine require such a profound um, breadth of base knowledge and facts before you can actually start to systematize them and you know it, it really for you know a few centuries people were just collecting facts without really understanding how they systematically fit with one another and um so that that, that i think is a part of it um but yeah so it takes a little while and so linnaeus was uh, talking about things there was also richard owen a big big thing that was going on in the early 1800s was uh, people really discovering fossils and trying to assemble them. I mean, people had known about fossils for a long time, but they never took the time to actually assemble them carefully. So you get this notion that there was, you know, maybe dragons in the past or maybe yeah. the Goliath in the scripture, but no one actually sat down to like really carefully extract, you know, a T-Rex skull and all of its bones and put it back together to see what it actually really looked like until, you know, you know, maybe a couple hundred years ago, right? So that, and then we were kind of discovering these like really amazing beasts in the past that we'd just never seen before. Um, and, and that was really stunning um, to people. And that's also when the, in the early 1800s is when the very first Neanderthal skull was discovered. And people were wondering about that because it looked human, but it didn't look quite like any human we've seen alive today. So what do you make of that? So they had that before Darwin. Yeah, that was before Darwin. So, yeah. um, so people, it was there. People knew about it. People didn't know what to make of it. And so Darwin looked at it and he was deeply impressed, right? He was very, very careful in Origin of Species not to write about human evolution. Because um, he knew that that was going to be a, um, uh, that was going to be the lightning rod. Yeah. And in fact, it was. I mean, actually, Christians really didn't have a problem with evolution an old earth or uh or evolution amongst the animals or augustine or... had the old earth <laughs> yeah that, that's actually just, no that... augustine had uh a yeah, well, he, thought, quick... it was... he thought the actual creation was instantaneous and that the the six days were metaphorical in that way but he thought the earth was much older than six thousand years yeah, well, i think that's a different issue that's right? a different issue we're talking about a different <laughs> yeah. you're, you're kind of skipping yeah. my story man sure so, go ahead keep going you lost me what were we talking about uh darwin um, oh yeah so he knew that but then you know it was huxley who he knew huxley was going to pick it up right oh he, yeah he, he should, so, he's like you do this part uh, basically I'll, that's why I'll this get the is mechanism why together. actually gets gets the name as you know darwin's uh, bulldog because he basically explained it uh i mean they had a very clear strategy the book comes out um, and then basically a couple months later, you know, there is like a, well, I and mean, we don't actually have any video recording, obviously, or audio recording, but we have, and we don't have transcripts, but we do have, um, a lot of, uh, you know, people talking about this big debate in Oxford 
between Richard Owens and Huxley. Huxley. And uh, where they really start to debate whether or not evolution and like what, well, the way how Huxley put it is what is man's place in nature? That ends up being in a few, in a few years later, what his book is. And he's saying that no, humans aren't continuous with nature. And he really makes the case that look at these Neanderthal skulls. <laughs> That's actually, okay. and so, um, and so you've been wondering what, who they are, but now we can actually figure that out. So, uh, so, you know, the question of Neanderthals have loomed over the conversation for a really long time in an interesting way. Anyways, um, that's where the, where, that's where the conflict has been. You know, B.B. Um, Warfield, who is the font, is actually one of the key people uh, that really kind of gives rise to the modern fundamentalist movement. He's one of the Princeton academics. Uh, he was a theologian who cared a great deal about inerrancy. He, uh, he actually had no problem with an old earth evolution in yeah. animal kingdom but the place where he had a problem was the de novo creation of adam and eve like that's right. the place where he put his foot down yeah. and so um i mean this is also where i mean this, that's that's really where where the divide was and uh now in the scientific context once again bouncing back, bouncing back to that initially people thought that um humans were different species there's many different species of human but it was really important actually darwin didn't believe that he actually argued that there were many different um subspecies and the reason why he actually argued that is just because of the, that there could be hybrids um as, as he put i mean as you might put it like you know a black person could marry a white person they'd have a kid and there wouldn't be reduced fertility okay so, so say, quick clarification question when was it that the idea of a species as something that you can't have uh that any members of a species can reproduce together, or, or if they can't reproduce. Well, so you're a philosopher of biology, so you know the answer. That, turns out, well, that, I'm not a philosopher uh, of biology so much. Oh, but. maybe not. It turns out, um, turns out, species. There was a really there's an important paper that a lot of people cite in philosophy of biology, which which identifies 26 different ways that that biologists use the term species. So, right now. <laughs> But at some point, I mean, I remember when I was a but kid. But even back then, even in the back 80s, then, that was how species was defined to me in my science textbook. Well, it's, that's how it's defined, but there's always boundary cases. And yeah, so, I know that. I'm aware of that. But, so the, the, I, but, but I'm just curious when, what period of time was that sort of the dominant framework? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't but, know if but, there ever was a dominant framework. Because the thing okay. about it is that, you know, you can also just determine species, and this is probably the dominant framework. For, first because like look most of the time you can't observe whether or not a species want to breed right yeah yeah i mean most of the time you can't most of the time all you can right. look at is geographic distribution and um and morphology or like what right. it looks like what's its shape right. is and so that's typically how it's done right and then and, and, you know and so just because there's like a variation there you can say oh it's a different species now it's when you start trying to formalize it more it starts to get far, far more difficult. Um, and you find out that a lot of species that really are distinct species can sometimes interbreed, but it wouldn't make sense to call them the same species. I mean, it, it really becomes a tension um, in a way where there is, a, you see a unity amongst different species, a possible unity, but you also see a disunity amongst them. Now, that is the dominant framework because people have been thinking about you know, biology for a lot longer. I mean, like, you know, the natural world, a lot longer than anything about human diversity, right? Interestingly enough. Um, and a large part of once again is colonialism because, you know, some people have argued it has to do with finally um, people moving to other 
uh, parts of the world quickly over time, like in a boat. So if you go, you know, walking, uh, you'll get exposed to a fi much finer gradation of variation. So you kind of see much more continuity and smoothness. But all of a sudden you get in a boat and like a couple months, you're um, halfway around the world. Well, you know, then you see people that seem entirely different and you just can't imagine any um, any blending or intermediates between you and them. <laughs> but in some ways it's an illusion. It's just because you only just cherry picked the part of, the, of, of what you've seen. That's part of it, right? But the other issue is just that that humans are weird. We're different than other animals. I mean, we are continuous with creation. We are part of the created order. We are we are mammals. We're apes. We're all of those things from a biological point of view. But we but are but we are different in bizarre ways. I mean, one of those is that we um, are one of the very very few species, the tiny minority, that is um, that is uh, what's called a cosmopolitan species. It's across the entire globe. There's very few species that are cosmopolitan that you go to any part of the world, you'll see humans there. I mean, you'll see that species there. Um, one example uh, of a cosmopolitan species that's sometimes pointed to is uh, killer whales. Um, but they well, also... It's, yeah, I mean, they're not on land. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we're no, not in the ocean either, but we, we go on it, but... Yeah, I mean... But you, you just mean on a large enough percentage of the kind of habitat that they're in. Yeah, I mean, it just turns out that there's very, very, very few species that end up spreading but, everywhere. So they're in all the oceans, killer whales. Yeah, also it turns out much. that we just interbreed over... Oh, well, it turns out it's and true. We migrate. There might be There might very well be subspecies of killer whales, right? This is actually one of the things where Alan Templeton contributed, I think, a great deal. Um, I think it's a really wonderful um, uh, contrast uh, because w what he did is he compared the genetics of chimpanzees to humans, okay? Uh, to look at the question of race. And what's really important to understand is what we see with chimpanzees pretty much matches what we see with uh, other animals all the time, but it's completely different than what we see in humans. So what he looked at is asked the question is, is there genetic races of, of, uh, of uh, chimpanzees? And is there uh, genetic races of humans by that same criteria? And he found out that uh, that there was there really does seem to be about you know three or four races of chimpanzees, even though they're confined to this little tiny area in Africa. They're genetically distinct and they're genetically isolated enough that you can really say that there are probably you know four or five genetic races of chimpanzee. They can interbreed with one another, but they're at least subspecies. And in fact, uh, you can see something that really looks like a chimpanzee really nearby, a bonobo. That all the only thing that really made that possible was a river between where the chimpanzees were and where the bonobos were. Now, now is, is he looking mostly at like how close their DNA as a group is to each other? Yes, and that's important because you know he's a population geneticist, right? So yeah. this is just one element, this is one angle where you can define race, and I think it's important because whether or not you agree with that definition or not, it does illustrate a fundamental difference between humans and how just about the rest of uh, animal kind has worked. Like, that's what happened. Like, you know, it's just this tiny area of the world. It's just Africa where you can get chimpanzees. And it's not even all of Africa. It's a pretty small area. And like I said, there's bonobos right next to them. You know, even young earth creationists will agree that bonobos and chimpanzees share a common ancestor, right? And uh, there's been really interesting field work um, that's shown that there's just a river that, that divides. It's a pretty wide river. You can't easily swim across it or, or whatever, but that kind of basically separates 
one population of chimpanzees from you know another population of bonobos and you know the presence of uh, you know different environments for a very long period of time really create a situation where chimpanzees are far more aggressive um, and bonobos are a lot more friendly it has to do like abundance of food and the presence of pre larger predators and things like that across this like tiny space and uh, you know I'd have to go back and see if, um, you know, chimpanzees and bonobos are cross-fertile. But in the wild, they just don't ever interbreed because they're not they, in the same they, they stay away from each other. Yeah. They, they don't have any interest in each other. They also have really different, you know, really different cultures. And, uh, and you know, uh, and, and, you know, like I said, also, it's like, you know, just between a couple different, you know, narrow areas, you see different types of chimpanzees that are spreading apart. So this is, this is just how it is for most things in the world like you know you'll see examples where you know you know birds can be pretty widely distributed but you know um but you know if you look at <laughs> there's species that are endemic to particular cave systems <laughs> where the only, you'll only find that species within a particular you know system of caves in south america um you'll mm. only find um you'll only find uh, it's part of the reason why we like zoos is because we know that you can only find right. zebras in Africa, right? Right, you, you get to see Americas. Yeah. Um, yeah. It wouldn't if zoos wouldn't be a thing if uh, if all animals were like humans. It would just be the same everywhere. <laughs> and so, like I said, you take that and then you just apply that to humans, and it just seems like a very natural extension. And that's also where the large debates that went on for centuries about nature or nurture arose, because the question is like, well, are all how much of these differences? Because someone started asking. How much of these differences are because of fundamental genetic differences or nature um, about how we're, how we're made or born and we inherit um, in immutable ways versus how much of it is cultural inheritance that is mutable and it's changeable? And for a long time, I would say the starting point, uh, the starting assumption is that the vast majority of differences were innate. And once again, that just fits to ordinary perception. Um, and a yeah. great way to think about it is how we uh, or how we appropriate language. Look, I'm speaking English to you. I don't have to think about it. I know some Spanish because I learned it when I was younger. Um, I have to think a lot harder to speak in Spanish. Um, now, I don't speak really any Hindi at all, just a few sentences. Um, now, why is that? Now, for a long time, before the clash of cultures, people thought that that might actually be, you know, you know, kind of related to very deep and green things about who we are. And it honestly feels that way. I don't actually feel like I can talk, uh, I could learn, you know, Chinese easily. And, and the fact of the matter is I can't. And so it does feel innate that I can't actually speak Chinese. But we actually know that that's not the case because of yeah. the fact that I'm here speaking English. My ancestors yeah. spoke Hindi and Tamil. Right. What yeah. happened is I came here and I was raised in the United States and they spoke English to me. And though I had no choice in the matter, I was acclimated to the English world. And so now English feels like swimming in, in you know, my world. And, and it feels innate, but it's not, right? And so that's how it is with language. It, you yeah. get exposed to these things very early in, in your life. It, they feel like they're, they're, they're part of your nature, um, but they actually probably are more mutable than you think. Because like, for example, if my kids ended up, even now at this age, like you know, a five-year-old and a two-year-old, two if we moved to China, they would be speaking Chinese like not like natives, you know, uh, you know, by the time they were in elementary school. That's the crazy thing about this. It's not actually innate, but it feels like it's innate. And so um, that's what we found out 
um, fairly recently in the in you know in in this historical context, extremely recently, really. And I would say with in science, I think it's become a settled debate in really important ways is that humans are not distinct species and anything that really seems to resemble what we see in the natural world. You mean, you mean the different groups of humans are not distinct from each other? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Not that humans Africans are not, are not a, not a different species. species from that. Yeah. And so in that way, Darwin ended up being right that you can't see it that way. Um, the big debate was, you know, are there distinct subspecies? And um, generally there'd be a hierarchy and obviously white people would be at the top of the hierarchy. That's just how it works. Um, and, okay, well, here's a question for you. Do you, do you find when people say that that idea was introduced in order to justify slavery, do you find that plausible or do you think there's not really? I mean, I can't, I think it's hard that. to talk about the motives of people. I think it makes the most sense. I mean, I think if you look at the fact, people have all sorts of motivations about this, including abolitionists. Yeah, So not all of them good, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of them, like, you know, you, you look and see how even Abraham Lincoln talked about it. You see oh, how- he was, uh, Yeah, he was a racist and a white supremacist. Well, That's pretty clear. But even like Gregory of Nyssa, you go back to Gregor of Nyssa too, like the first abolitionists and, you know, even the freedom writers. Look, I think- the reality is it just seems self-evident like so like the, if you never look we're just in a different context now right now um, all of us know african americans and indians that have done very well in education and become you know phds and, and contribute and and you know they're you know when it, when it comes to the to really what it means to be human we know they're no different than us right but just keep in mind that that is not a, a basic fact of reality for you know most people across the earth you right. know 500 years yeah. ago and it I, wasn't I, because that wasn't true as a possibility it's just because of a lack of opportunity and frankly oppression you know if you don't allow people to uh you know go to college you'll never find you know an african that's gone to college <laughs> and, and and that's not really it's kind of circular then to claim that they're not capable of going to college, right? Right. Well, Frederick Douglass, everyone was willing to see, yes, this guy's smart, but they were, they saw him as an exception. Exactly. So, so the thing about it is the oppression was so high that it was just not there. And then when it eventually was happening, you'd say, okay, maybe there's an exceptional one that will do it, but it's very right. clear. Well, and people still say that about Thomas Sowell and so on. Well, they still say that. Of a different time. I've, I've heard people say that. Yeah, I think what we found out, though, and this is this is scientific um, and pretty clear, is that the vast majority of differences that we think are innate, the vast, vast majority, are not genetic. They are far more mutable than that. They, mutable yeah. means changeable. They have to do with, uh, they, they, they function a lot more like how language works. Um, and this is surprising. I get it. It just turns out that, you know, just as as much as it's difficult to imagine learning to speak Chinese right now as a middle-aged man, you know, I can yeah. take a hold of the fact, well, if I'd been exposed to it as a child, maybe I really could speak Chinese. And that's at an individual level, but most of the differences we see are um, inherited in the same way that language is inherited. Um, they are, uh, they're passed down, they have to do with structures where parents have been, and they do constrain us in very important ways, but they're not genetic. They're not mutable. And, and they might take effect at such a young age that they can't be undone very easily. 
That's true too. I, I think that's true about certain kinds of intellectual skills that if you yeah. don't develop them at a very young age, you're not going to. And that's why it's so hard for us to learn Chinese. Yeah, so I think the issue is that we find out is that this is where it kind of ends up being a mediated position. Um, so it is inherited in a lot of ways, inherited, but not just merely from parents, because it's not genetically inherited. It's right. inherited, it's, it's a societal inheritance or, or some, a lot of it is just sort of unconscious stuff that, that we observe around us that affects us. Well, I don't want to say unconscious either. I think a lot of it um, begins consciously and then it becomes part of like the framework. So, you know, uh, one way I've thought about it too is how, uh, you know, how, uh, how it's worked out for uh, segregation in St. Louis. You know, there's black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. Why is that? It's not because white people, uh, you know, I'm sorry, it's not because black people don't want to live in, in white neighborhoods. In fact, if you talk to them, they want to live in more integrated neighborhoods. That's that's what they want. Um, what happened actually is that uh, when they moved into neighborhoods, as soon as a neighborhood had more than 5% uh, African-Americans, the, uh, the, the housing costs would drop and there would be white flight and people would leave. Right. And when you look at it from the white person's point of view, it was completely rational. The reason why is because the housing prices are dropping. Ra rational in the sense of rational self-interest. Exactly. It's, it's a, kind of a Hobbesian rationality. If you include morality in, in rationality though, as I would, <laughs> I would say it's actually not rational, but yeah, I understand what Well, you I mean, mean, I think it's complicated because you know- it, it's. It's well, yeah. It's not as clearly. It's complex it's, because you know. Not as clearly most people would say, you know, I, you know, we need to take care of our families first, like my, right. my child. And right. All that. Yeah. I mean, it's. I'd say it becomes really messy. Well, then wait, how, how did we get to this point? Well, it turns out just like you know, in you know my um, in my wife's parents' generation, there was something called redlining here. I mean, it turns out that mm -hmm. segregation was made illegal. White people were all of a sudden allowed to 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 live wherever they wanted, but people in St. Louis got creative and invented this thing called redlining, where you know they would make it harder for people in certain areas and of certain colors to get loans in particular places to buy a house, yeah. and in that way they confined Africans to the African neighborhood and white people to the white neighborhood. That eventually became illegal, and that's what I mean. Then the next solution was white flight. Yeah. And so the reason why this is going on is because like of a very deeply ingrained structure that was set up to keep us living apart. It was set up very intentionally and consciously. It was not unconscious. They Originally, but we're talking 19th century, early 20th century here. We're not talking 1970, right? Well, redlining was set up very consciously. I think it was still conscious in the 1970s? Absolutely. It okay. Was. All right. I mean, so, and you know, and while maybe now you can point to example, you can, you can make the best case scenario that white flight was not conscious. At times it was conscious because you can talk to people here and they'll tell you about conversations they've had with it in, in their own marriages or even with their, about the, with their parents where it is actually explicitly talking about the black people coming into the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. 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 So, Quite a lot of white flight was conscious and deliberate. That's certainly true. So look, look, it, you know, but that has an impact. It has a generational impact. So but it's yeah. like kind of like basically um, acting in what seems in a very local way to make a ton of sense, but really neglecting things. That is an inheritance. It is actually very sticky. It is not something that um, that's easy to get rid of. And it has a deep impact on us and who we are, how we see the world, how our children will, how our neighbor's children will see the world. And, and it is inheritance, but it's not genetic. 
it's easy to imagine a world that worked a different way. It's actually yeah. very easy to imagine the kingdom of God in St. Louis. It's easy to imagine St. Louis as an integrated city. That's, that's feasible. That's possible. There's no reason why we couldn't have it except for our ancestors set up a different way. And I think this is, is, is like a really core and key thing that we need to recognize, I think, about race. I think that, uh, that while it just seemed self-evident, there was nothing inevitable about it. It turns out that it's really just an illusion that the way how the world's been set up has really been set up in times very consciously to get to set to really give us this illusion that, that it works a particular way, but it could have been different and it can be different. We have to be willing to, to, to do things uh, to, to really uproot the way it's been set up and to put something better in its place. I think the, the best philosopher who has written about social construction is Ian Hacking. And that's exactly how he sees a social construction. It's something that appears to be inevitable, but isn't. <laughs> that's how he defines a social construction. It, it, it comes across as something that, that, of course, it has to be that way. And yet, when you actually look at the causes of it being that way, it turns out it, there's no reason it would have had to have been that way. It's just that it is that way. Yeah, and I would also so, say that that is, that's also a core teaching of Christianity, I would say. It's the fall. It's the whole message yeah. of Scripture, I would say, this, the overarching structure, uh, message of Scripture, in which, which Jesus interjects and says there is a new order possible, is to say that, look, what you take for granted is the way it has to be is actually a product of the fall. You've mistaken your sinful nature as your true nature. Are, are you familiar with Cornelius planting a... Uh, no. Alvin's brother. No. He has a book there. He argues that that's what sin is. <laughs> and it's so called we, a breviary of sin. Well, uh, I think I think that's what you get. you get. It has to do with this profound sense where you mistake what is completely, frankly, evil. We actually identify it as ourselves and say that that is the way it always yeah. has to be. That is how we are made. Yeah. When it's not. And what yeah. it's saying is like what you see in the Adam and Eve story actually is this notion, which is very, I think, powerfully true. Is that you know what actually there was ancestors in the very distant past that you even forgot about and don't even know about that made choices that created a fallen cosmos a fallen world fallen society a fallen civilization and you inherited that and that's your problem and the only solution to this that scripture really offers you know is the new city the new kingdom that comes by way of jesus it's interesting that he talks in kingdom language um what he's talking about is a new world order uh, that is uh, back to the garden, basically saying, you know, civilization is really screwed up. Yeah. Like the, the, the city is evil. The, the, the politics are evil. And I'm going to be in this world, but we're not of it. We're just temporarily here. There's another world. There's another world that's possible. And yeah, you're going to get to see a taste of it here. But this is not what it is. <laughs> and I mean, it's a fairly radical claim. I mean, people are going to react to the term the new world order, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But I'm not talking about that in a communist sense. I'm talking about it in, in what Christ said as a new kingdom. That's why it was so offensive to, to the Romans. And it's why it's so offensive to us. We want to think that we're not that far off. If you grade America on a curve, we're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're the city on a hill. Right. Yeah, it's sort of the post-millennialist uh, positive uh, 
things are things are I mean, this is a very popular idea in the island in the 19th century. Early it's a popular century. idea right now. I don't know if you and, can look and, very well, closely. But, but, but it totally, everyone dismissed it instantly once we had World War I and World War II and the Holocaust and they saw all that. Um, but somehow it's come back in um, evangelical well, you know, circles. Not post-millennials, Abraham Moeller, who's a, who's a literature professor here at WashU, who's a Christian, he wrote a book called City on a Hill where he studies how this uh, this quote from a Puritan sermon became uh, become a defining uh, statement of hum- of, of, of uh, American identity, yeah. and how uh, I mean I think honestly his his book is really interesting in this regard. I'm going to put you in contact with him. But look, in the end, in the end, like we just have to recognize that you know if we're trying to say America is the promised land. We have really substituted the kingdom of God for something that is not comparable to the kingdom of God. I mean, yeah, it's idolatry. God is better. I think. I think heaven is better than this. Heaven is not segregated; it is integrated. I mean, no one imagine. I mean, I've talked to atheists all the time. I talk to to white people, black people, uh, Indians, Asians, you name it. I've asked all sorts of people about how they imagine heaven. No one imagines, even if they're an atheist and they don't think heaven exists, no one imagines heaven as a segregated city. Yeah. It's, and so, I, you know, so why are we okay with it here? And, you know, when we pray for God's will to be done on earth that is done on heaven, we ask for his kingdom to come. That's a prayer for integration. And it's a prayer that we have not, uh, not been having an easy time doing because the inheritance of segregation is strong. Join us next time for part two of the interview with Dr. Josh Swamidas.